You're about to hear audio from our March 7th visit with author Kevin McQueen and musician, author, visual artist J.D. Wilkes of the legendary Shack Shakers, two of our favorite past guests. These guys have been fans of each other for quite some time. However, as mentioned in the audio, they hadn't met before our event. We were quite honored to be able to bring them together to converse about their work. Once their conversation is over, J.D. plays us out with a few tunes. Unfortunately, we had some audio issues. A hot mic led to some muffling, and most of the questions asked by the crowd are too low to make out. You will be able to parse out the questions from the answers given, though. With all that said, please enjoy this recording of An Afternoon with Kevin McQueen and J.D. Wilkes. Yeah, I'm just going to hold it. So. I've had bad experiences with these things. Okay. Okay, that sounds all right. Well, now what do we do? <laughs> I'm the quiet speaker anyway. I just want to say one of the reasons why I started writing books and things was because this guy right here is my, my, my biggest hero, author. And I, I, we've known one another email and online for about 15 years or more. And uh, but this today is the first time we've, we've met one another, so it's been. This is a cool. historic moment. <laughs> you should take pictures. <laughs> but uh, yeah, if it wasn't for the Kentucky Book of the Dead, um, I would never. I, I didn't know that you could um, take dark tales and make them funny, also, and like that's and and take the stuffiness out of the academic research that you'll read in a lot of the, like local interest regional interest books um, is written in a way that's like kind of boring or stuffy or like they're writing for other professors to impress them and uh, but what you know reading his books it's just like I'm laughing and I'm going ooh at the same time and it's, it's a page turn you just blow through these books they're so cool and they're illustrated and uh, so it's like oh you mean you could do that and uh, write about local history and and, and uh, true crime and stuff like that and, and still be funny and have illustrations. So how about it for this guy, everybody? I don't know. <laughs> That's my dismount. <laughs> Thank you. I'm, I'm kind of surprised to hear that because I thought he'd been writing stuff long, long, long before I ever wrote anything. Well, I, I did comics and uh, That's right. cartoons and things like that, but I and I, I did take a creative writing class in college, and uh, I enjoyed that, but I didn't pursue it uh, like short stories or anything like that till um, so I got a hold of your books and, and was empowered to like, oh, I, maybe I can do that too, because the comics were funny, and uh, then sometimes, you know, they were weird and twisted, like R. Crumb kind of stuff, but uh, it's like, it's kind of just taking the same thing into a different medium, which... Uh, uh, you know, seemed to go naturally with what I was wanting to do. You know, so I was just getting, uh, expanding my world, and you were part of that. And uh, also another guy, uh, Jamie Barrier from the Pine Hill Haints is a great, it's like a jug band out of Alabama, and he's been doing a zine forever, you know. And uh, and he does he didn't study it. He's like an economics major or something. He didn't take any classes 
uh, he never wrote for the paper or anything. He just is passionate and has all these stories and dreams, and he writes, and his and his wife uh, illustrates the that. So like that, and because he's you are like a professor or an academic, and he is just like a skateboarding kid, you know. And but you know, it's like whenever you, you see people doing things that are interesting and um, that isn't necessarily what you think would come out of them. It's, it's like, well, if they could do it, I could do it too, maybe. Or at least gives you the courage to try. So, thanks again. Well, you're welcome. I think your cartoons are good enough to be literature, to be considered literature. Have you ever seen his cartoons? You really should see his cartoons. Yeah, that's what I wanted to be when I was a kid, you know. You know, I didn't go out and play much. I just <laughs> <laughs> sit for hours in my room drawing cartoons. So it's like, oh, you can make a living at that. That'd be great. But it's hard. To, you don't even see cartoons anymore, hardly. The, the paper, they're like this big. And everything's, anything funny online is a meme now, which is just a picture with a caption on it. It's like, it's not a whole lot of work that goes into it. So it's like, well, I guess cartoons are just kind of going the way of uh, the dinosaur. So too bad because I really I really like doing all that but um, Gary Larson uh, Farside uh, Cracked magazine as opposed to mad I thought the art was better in Cracked R. Crumb uh, Thomas Nass the 1800s cartoonist that came up with the Republican elephant the Democrat donkey came up with that symbol and he, our image of Santa Claus is from him as opposed to Father Christmas, which it was forever, and uh, so and he he did engravings, and it's really highly rendered, beautiful artwork. Uh, Harper's Weekly illustrator, and um, Edward Gorey, the Gashley Crumb Tinies. Uh, I like cross hatching and stuff like that. And then I noticed once I started playing banjo, I stopped drawing because the same. Zen repetitious itch that I scratched when I made these drawings was being replaced by that same repetitious thing of the banjo and so uh, It's more like a nervous habit any of these things that I do. It's just like a scratching an itch Anyway mm -hmm. Well, most of my research comes from, <clears throat> excuse me, from old newspapers. I, I spend my spare time going through old Louisville Courier journals issue by issue with a laptop and taking notes of things that sound like they might be good stories. And it's kind of interesting because you can see how these things unfold day by day just like a novel. And they're not all worth writing about, but some of them are. And sometimes even stories that are pretty well known, you'll find extra details that you haven't seen anywhere else. So I originally started with 1877 and worked my way up to 1940. And then I decided I need more material, so now I've started with 1830 and I've made my way up to 1852. It takes forever. <laughs> Even uh, the papers in those days were only four pages each, no Sunday papers, and about two pages were advertisements. And even then, it takes forever to get through them. But hopefully in a few years, I'll be done and I'll have even more material. That's mostly how I do it. I don't use the internet very much at all.
Oh, I'm sorry, libraries? Oh, sometimes. And sometimes court records. Yeah, mostly old newspapers. On microfiche? Just microfilm. Yeah, you put it in and you roll it just like a movie with, with scratches and everything. You better wear glasses when you're reading the really old ones because the type is about this big. You're usually doing, uh, well, for Kentucky stuff, is it old courier journals? Courier journals mostly because that was the biggest paper in the state at the time. And it uh, you don't miss an issue. And they, they, um, they did a good job of separating the true stories from the false ones. And they have a lot of news from other states, too. And uh, sometimes, though, for extra details, I find you want to go to Interlibrary Loan and get the local paper on microfilm if it's available, because the local paper will always have information that you don't find in the national press stories. One of your stories, I, don't, I can't remember which book it was. It might be Book of the Dead. Uh, you talked about um, the belled buzzard. And there's an illustration in there, too. And that story, after reading it, spawned an excerpt in my novel, a, a, a song that Shack Shakers did. And uh, further research uh, that it had been spotted in western Kentucky. And there was an obituary that I found online. I don't Or maybe you... You put it up. I can't remember of that the belled buzzard had died. And oh, I think so. Yeah. Oh, it died many times. So very basically, what? <laughs> yeah, it might have been something. Do you know what that is? So basically, it's a, a vulture, you know, turkey buzzard that has a collar and a bell on it, and yeah. you hear it coming. I should explain that one. I think it'll make more sense. Uh, you mentioned the illustration. I should point out that a lot of my books are illustrated by my identical twin brother, who's a very good cartoonist, and I actually brought him with me. So if you turn Stand around, up. you'll see a guy that kind of looks like me, but with glasses. <laughs> and uh, that's my official illustrator there. Yeah. Well, the belled buzzard, back in the... It's so strange, it's hard to even describe where it originates, but apparently at one time there was a buzzard flying all around the state and somebody had captured it and put a bell around its neck. So you'd be working in the fields and you'd hear this little ding, 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 and the air getting closer and closer and you'd look up and here comes the belled buzzard. It's a true story. Uh, the belled buzzard was seen in Kentucky, but also pretty much every state which of course means it had to be more than one buzzard, and it was seen over the course of well over 100 years. So the idea is that <laughs> at some point the original bell buzzard died and somebody caught another buzzard. Maybe, maybe several people caught several buzzards, and there were many of them flying around the U.S., but you'd see newspaper reports saying the bell buzzard is dead. We found it. It is frozen. It had a bell around its neck. Goodbye, bell buzzard. And then you'd wait a few weeks till the springtime. The bell buzzard has been seen flying over Hawesville, Kentucky. So either it was a phoenix or it was many birds. Do you think that it was some kind of folk... Uh tradition or craft or some kind of a, a granny magic or a farming technique to that served a purpose that was just obscure like it was like that's why it happened so often i'd like to know how they caught it in the first place yeah. <laughs> what did they, they bait 
to catch a belled buzzard with. And how do they hold it still long enough to put a bell around its neck? Uh, I don't really know. Irvin Cobb even wrote a story about the belled buzzard. Mm -hmm. And there was a folk song called The Belled Buzzard, but I was never able to figure out if the song came first or the legend of the buzzard came my, first. Uh, my theory is because the, bu uh, the belled buzzard fiddle tune has ragtime jazz chord changes in it. Ragtime jazz chord changes like it, like that you wouldn't necessarily hear uh, from the first reporting of it. I'm thinking that it, 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 it came, I guess, in the, around the turn of the century, or teens or 20s, because that's when you find those kind of chords. Yeah, so. That's brilliant deduction. See, I'm not a musician in mm. any way, and J.D. is a musician, so he would notice that. Mm. Yeah. Me, it just sounds so it like a, a date, fiddle. a time melody. frame on when it was written. So, that's a, great. That's long after the first sighting. I mm. need to remember that. Well, we were talking about the punk rock retirement plan. It's basically, <laughs> if you're like a punk rock kid or a skateboarder or whatever, and you, you know you get into that hard music and acting crazy and slam dancing and all that, and after a while, your body can't take it, and, you, and your tastes change. And uh, I was all—I was never really into punk rock, really. I'd, I'd, li I'd like going to the shows, but I—I I was always into more like blues and old timey music and. Uh, yeah, but I, so I married those kind of things up, and we did form the Shack Shakers. But after a while, I'm like, I just feel like an idiot, you know. And uh, so I was like, and I don't really know the roots of all this like I ought to. Like, it's country-based, it's blues-based and all that. And uh, But where did, where did that come from? And I just kind of just uh, had, like, some time off from touring, and I was like, uh felt like I ought to get in the car and just make this trip. I made a couple trips from Paducah to Pikeville and, and every, you know, every little place that I could find, uh, every little nook and cranny that I could had time for, uh, I'd stop in and, and to these little jamborees, barn dances, uh, Opry houses. Sometimes they'd be in like a mini mall. Sometimes it was a kind of a little weekly festival they'd have in a park or in a gazebo. It could be anywhere. Uh, it could be just an impromptu, or not impromptu, but an informal jam that's had in a living room, but it's been going on for years. So I, I was interested in re, um, learning, uh, you know, getting closer to the music, getting closer to the source, interviewing old timers uh, that I believe uh, you know, sad when they pass away. It's like they say, a library burning down, perish the thought, but uh, it's. I wanted to, uh, as many of the kind of World War II and Korean War era old timers that I could interview, like knowing what they had seen in their lives with the depression and poverty and all that, and a closer connection to, uh, you know, the traditions that, uh, it was amazing, it was like they're all little time capsules that you get to interview, and, uh, and the musician version of that was what I was after. A lot of these barn dances were run by um, some kind of colorful local character who might have known Ernest Tubb or he has some claim to fame you know and had a lot of great stories there's like one in every town and there's like a little Quonset hut out by, behind his house where his, his all those old buddies get together and pick and they've been doing it for 50 years or something that's what I was after something recurring weekly re recurring and, and uh, filled with uh, history and you know, sort of a 
a more uh, connected path, uh, more of a connection to more of an agrarian rural past that has been replaced by industry and corporate music. So I did about two trips back and forth, and um, and I did a lot of research online and libraries and and some of the history. I because I'm not a historian, I outsourced to guys like John Herod and uh, Nathan Blake Lynn who uh, helped me understand how, how it goes back even further to England, Scot Scotland and Ireland, Caled tradition and uh, polkas even, um, you know, just basically where anywhere people were, they needed to gather to, because there wasn't television or movies, you made your own entertainment and, uh, and music was kind of performed as a, uh, uh, sort of a, a release for the community uh, because you, you died when you were 40 with three teeth in your head, you know, like for most of human history. And uh, the closest to that stark, hard scrabble past was what I was finding in those little hollers of Kentucky when I'd interview these, these, these old timers. So that was, I felt fulfilled in, uh, in having written that. And, uh, by the time I was done, I felt like I'd learned something. And that, that's what I was after, really. It was a, kind of a, just a wild hair idea, but, yeah. But uh, I wouldn't use it so much as a travel guide anymore because a lot of those old timers have died. And so I've, in, I've included phone numbers, any of the places that you might be interested in visiting, call ahead, because it might not be there anymore. It's like one of my favorite places. Um, just uh, recently burned down, and uh, that was uh, Earl's in, uh, in Marshall County. It's was, it was like stepping back in time. It was like I've dreamt about it since. It's just was something like you couldn't imagine, like time travel. But it, you know, these things go away, and that's why it's important to write all this down. You know, tell people about it. Well, the last one was Weird Wild West. I, I started off writing only about Kentucky for the first seven books or so, and then I branched out into Indiana. And now I'm doing regional books, and Weird Wild West is just strange, bizarre, gothic, true stories from the western states. I, I have one coming out in a few months called Bizarre Bluegrass, so it's another Kentucky book. My favorite one in your new book is the weird vampire cajun cult of texas oh yeah well that's right up at the beginning but uh the, the, what a way to get a book started tell them about that well it's funny you should mention that but i actually did that intentionally i thought you need a good story at the beginning to get people interested so what's more interesting than an axe murder cult <laughs> from the turn of the century uh, where people would just break in into your house and kill everyone with an axe i mean that's pretty interesting <laughs> yeah. uh, Texas and Louisiana, they just sort of went from across the border. And nobody really is sure if it was a true organized cult or just one woman might have done it. She was like a hoodoo vampire sort of witch. Sort of cultish, yeah. Yeah, it's just yeah. messed up. Pretty cool. <laughs> Like, like me, 
Oh, they're all true. I, I have no imagination whatsoever. <laughs> I see that JD's just done a novel and I'm extremely jealous because I would love to write fiction and novels and I just can't do it. But they're all true. They're all based on newspaper research. So assuming the newspaper stories are true, then the stories are, are true. Yeah, people do often ask about that and I always say, well, you know, weird, true, real life is weird. Real life, real things that happen are weirder than anything you could possibly imagine. And it, I guess if you write fiction, you always have to at least keep it reasonable where it could happen, unless it's science fiction, but real life doesn't have to obey rules like that. Oh, yeah, the obituaries are hilarious. <laughs> Maybe that's just me, but. Oh, some of the. Well, let me read you one. Uh, this is Kentucky Book of the Dead, and the publishers liked one of the obituaries so much they put it on the cover. I guess they figured people would want to read the book really badly. So, Glasgow, Kentucky, October 21st. Luther Johnson, a young farmer living in the southern part of this county, blew into the muzzle of a shotgun early this morning to see if it was loaded. It was. <laughs> From the Courier-Journal, October 22nd, 1899. <laughs> It was. There's more of the same, plenty more of the same. That's like comedy writing in the 1800s. It is, isn't it? Uh, people just seem to have had a, I don't know, I guess they dealt with death so much so often they started thinking it was pretty funny. They didn't sanitize it like we do. Can you go grab it real quick? I'm sorry, yeah. Well, see, uh, that I was able to be uh, colorful writing this because uh, it's not like uh, it's not trying to be believable. It is kind of like science fiction, but there's a this genre that I just learned a term for. I did I didn't even know I was writing in this style. It's something called Southern Fabulism, hmm. which is like um, uh, kind of like a f fantasy but southern gothic or something like that i just i thought i was just uh basically what i did is uh all growing up you know we all hear these folk tales our grandma tells us or something or about you know the goat man or uh, something like that and uh and so i just like i've always kind of logged those away or and at one point i kind of wrote down a bunch of them and you'll find them in like local interest books you know like and uh, but I didn't want to write a local interest book because I just did that. But I do know how to take a list of things and then flesh them out. And so what I did is I fleshed out a lot of those old tales that I had heard and embellished them and made them crazier using just imagination, I guess. And then tried to run a through line through it with of a plot that these two guys that go out into the woods have all of these things actually happen. So it's novelized kind of the way Tolkien took Anglo-Saxon and Norse mythology and fictionalized, novelized that and had Frodo and Sam go into the woods and have all that happen. So it's the same kind of idea, but our own local tales instead of hobbits and goblins, you know. But, uh, well, unless you're in Hopkinsville. <laughs> but... Uh, Yeah. Uh, 
Yeah, I've made a mistake of going to Nashville thinking I could make play write songs about this very thing and and make it big hit the big time like you know everybody wants to hear a song about the goat man or the the hoofenogger or the bell witch and uh i was wrong yeah. so i was writing these like real wordy songs you know just trying to cram the whole story in like four or five verses of like tongue twisters just to get the story told because I was a musician. I didn't know that I was actually a writer and uh, I was songwriting and I was like wasting my time trying to have anyone care about, the, but if you put it in a book form, they, they, they like that, they just like it better in this format. And you sit, you know, have it by the commode and think through it. That is your songwriting right there. Yeah. Yeah, that, that I didn't realize that I was actually probably ought to have been doing short stories or this kind of stuff until it was too late. <laughs> but uh, so, but I'm work, I'm still working on it. I'm not dead yet, so I got another one in the works that's a sequel. But but it's um, you know it, it, this time it's a list of nightmares I've had and uh, novelizing them, then that's even harder because they don't relate at all. And then trying to keep it a sequel to have the flavor continue over without the folk tales. So like, you know, I'm, it's just, uh, you know, the, the way that I was enhancing the folk tales was nightmarish and weird. I was like, well, well just, I, how about I just get rid of the folk tales and keep, keep the, and just do the nightmares. So it's almost horror. <laughs> that's southern horror now. Yeah, blame it on you. I learned it by watching you. Okay. <laughs> I don't know. But yeah, it's southern fabulism is a term, I guess. It's like there's another term, like uh, something I just learned, acid western. You ever heard of that? So it's basically like Louis L'Amour on, on acid, Yeah. <laughs> Can't yeah, I think it's cool because it's it just allows you, like you said, like uh, to bend the rules of reality and stretch it even further, which I think people growing sort of a uh, uh, too used to the the same old tropes or the same old kind of predictable storyline. So it's one way to just you know spice things up. Hmm. Well, I'd like to break it down so it's nuggets because if, if everyone's like me, it's like I, I fall asleep when I'm reading. And I like to like have a kind of a shoot, like I'm, at least I can get this section done before the book falls on my face. You know? <laughs> and then I illustrate it. And so it's kind of like keeps you going, like, oh, I'll make it to the drawing maybe, and then I'll fall asleep. <laughs> In both sense of the word, gory, yeah. Oh, well. I thought I could um, just tell some stories. I find they usually go a little better if I just tell them off the top of my head instead of simply reading them. I don't know why, out of context, they don't seem to work so well. So I thought I'd tell the story about the time I, I think I heard a ghost. <laughs> I'm not sure, but I think I did. Um, and the stories in the book, I, I used to work at Whitehall near Richmond. It was the home of Cassius Clay, the emancipationist, which uh, I don't know if it's open to the public at the moment. Uh, Eastern 
it was given to Eastern by the state. For years, the state owned it. And I think Eastern's still trying to decide what exactly to do with it, but it will be opened. And there was some storm damage recently. Until they fix the roof, they can't let anyone in. But anyway, I was a guide there for years, and the place is supposed to be haunted. And lots of people who visit there and a lot of the other coworkers I had would see things and hear things. I was very disappointed because I never saw anything. I wanted to, but I never did. But I did hear a few interesting things uh, that I, whenever we heard things, we would run off and look for an explanation. We would try to find the answer. Sometimes we found a real rational explanation, but a lot of the time we didn't. <clears throat> Excuse me. Uh, so my story goes this way. Whenever we had large, large groups of people coming through, we would divide, we would put a guide on each floor. There were three floors. It's a split level house. There was an old house from 1798 that Clay's father built, and then in the 1860s, he and his wife built around it. So split-level rooms, something you don't often see in a house that old. And we had a huge group coming through, about to come through, and my job that day was to show them the third floor. So I was standing in the split-level room between the second and third floor, just sitting there, not thinking about ghosts at all. We had a guide who had already taken a group through. So I thought she was in the house somewhere with her tiny group. On the third floor, there was a room called the history room. It was just an old bedroom. We put photos in it and artifacts, and people just go in and look around and you know spend a few minutes looking around. I was standing there waiting for the group to arrive, and I heard a woman's voice speaking from the history room. It was clearly coming from the room down the hall, which we called the history room. Um, she was speaking very lowly. I couldn't understand what she was saying. I thought it was the other guide saying something along the lines of, well, feel free to look around a few minutes and then we'll go downstairs. Something like that. And then it got very quiet. I thought people were in the room just looking at pictures. And finally, enough time passed that I thought I'd really better tell Amy to get these people downstairs because we're about to have a massive crowd up here. And I went into the history room, and it was completely, totally empty. I had definitely heard a voice coming from that room. No one was in it, and nobody could have come downstairs because there was only one way down, and I was standing there. That was the number one thing that happened to me there that made me say, well, I don't know, maybe there is something to this. But we all heard things like uh, furniture being pushed, and we heard voices, and some of my coworkers heard a music box. There are no music boxes in the house. That one especially bothered me because I missed it only by a few minutes. If I had been just a few minutes ahead, then I would have heard it too, maybe. But that day, I, the luck was not with me, and I didn't hear the ghostly music box. I don't think they did. Uh, if they did, they didn't tell me. Uh, one other kind of interesting thing, there are no music boxes in the house now, but Clay's second wife, I guess I should tell you, it's a good story. He was, if I recall, 84 when he married her, and she was 15. Yeah. It's like Larry King. <laughs> yeah, like her. Exactly. Exactly. Apparently, she had a music box, and he didn't want her to have it. So we heard the music box, and we wondered, well, Dora's getting a little revenge here. She's playing her music box. 
it was creepy. Oh, people kept seeing things there. Uh, a lot of the tourists did. I wish they'd reopen it to the public. Oh, it's great. It's an enormous house. It had 44 rooms, if you include the closets, which uh, closets are a very rare thing from houses that old because you had to pay taxes on them. If you ever go to an old house and you wonder where the closets are, they had wardrobes, so they wouldn't have to pay an extra tax for their closets. But Clay had closets and running water. Yeah, some of my coworkers really heard the good stuff. They kept hearing there was one room in particular, there were two closets, there was a door on the right, and they just kept hearing voices coming from that room. And they would go and look and there'd never be anything in there. It was the room we called Sarah Clay's room, but usually if anything happened, it generally centered around that room. So that's, that's my story. <laughs> That, that happens pretty often. Unfortunately, back in the old days, a lot of the newspapers, they would tell this fantastically weird story, and then they wouldn't follow it up, and you're left wondering, so what happened? And unless you get the local paper, which sometimes tells you what happened next, you never do find out. So sometimes I'll actually hear a really good story that I can't resist telling but there's no real true ending to it so usually I'll just say something like I was unable to find out what happened next oh it is it is it explains a lot about my personality well you have to wonder uh, why were they telling half of a great story and then never finishing it so maybe somebody did could be. Sometimes, but not too many. Yeah, usually I'll find a way to make something really disturbing kind of funny if I can help it. I figure if you, if you don't make it a little funny, people, it's just too depressing. So make it creepy, but make it funny. But there are some things that just, um, you, there's just no way to tell it in a way that's going to be amusing in any fashion. So. With biology, did you uh, draw from your working knowledge of all these uh, folk tales, or did you dive into the research for that? Or? Yeah, a lot of, I got started just the ones that I remember hearing growing up, and then asked, I then also did a comic strip for a Nashville paper called uh, Legend Has It. So the idea there was, Email me your local legends, and I'll, well, I will uh, retell it kind of like in tweetable length, uh, at least comic strip length, and try to con con congest it and illustrate it in a comic strip, and that ran for about a year or two, legend has it. And so I got a lot of stuff from people, and uh, people that I, whose comics, or whose stories I did you end up using for the comic, I, I thanked in the back, uh, because, you know, it's like a kind of a modern-day oral tradition, you know, emailing stories and sharing it out the way we did. And uh, so I got a lot of cool content. Uh, it's it's Americana. It's kind of like public domain legends and things, you know. Uh, some of them I had heard before. Some of them I hadn't heard. So I made sure to cite the source of, you know, because it's, it's, it is sort of a local interest, regional interest thing. But I would take their story and 
novelize it by embellishing it more and like taking it beyond just that simple thing gave myself permission as a writer to do that and uh not, you know it's not a history book so I, I have creative poetic license or whatever so yeah the first first one i remember hearing as a kid was uh but my mom told me on lane road off husband road in paducah uh there is this bridge and I've heard this in other, other uh, states, I've heard the same story, the eyes of Lane Road, but it would be the eyes of such and such road or, or such and such creek or whatever, the eyes. And what it is is there was a, these teenage, teenagers on a date, like the, in this case it was the 50s or whatever, and they're racing down a road. You know, and he's not watching the road. He's like trying to get get her in his arms, and and uh, he ends up driving his '57 Chevy or whatever off this bridge, and they drown and died. And you know, and uh, and it was like it, uh, they say that if you go there on the bridge at midnight and look down, their eyeballs bubble to the top and look at you, and they say the eyes of Lane Road are upon you. And so I remember as a kid being like weirded out by that. And then I'm, I actually went there at midnight once to see if it would happen, you know, or what are they seeing, fish or something? Or, and it just turns out it's just kind of fun hogwash, you know. But, that, but it's also, I think a lot of these even go back to old country and are, are archetypal in some way. And, uh, it's, it, and so I, I have that in here and a couple other things like that that I heard from my family and then uh, just friends and, and that comic strip that I was running. Yeah, the deadening is a real place. Yeah, that's, um, although it's nothing like I've done to it in here. Uh, my old buddy Lane, uh, who I was, I was in the Dirt Divers with, told me about it. And uh, actually, I spent many years just right across the street from it. I didn't know. On um, Scale Road in Marshall County, uh, there is this dead forest uh, called the uh, Burkholder's Deadening. Burkholder is the last name of a logger that uh, owned all that in, um, uh, what do they call it? The um, El uh, Elva, the Elva, it's lowlands or bottoms. Bottoms, that's what it is. And. Um, so what it is, is uh, the reason why it's a dead forest is because he, he went out to log his trees, and the way you do that is you cut a swath in the bark and let it bleed out the sap and die so that logging is easier for later when you return for the next trip. You've got to kill the tree before you log it for whatever reason. That was the process. The problem is, after he rang his trees, he died and never went back to harvest his forest. So they all, uh, the, so the, the legend is, as we go into Burkholder's deadening, you will most assuredly get lost and have to be forced to spend the night. So if you go in as a hunter or a camper or whatever, you're going to get lost and you're going to have to spend the night. You will find your way out in the morning, but in the morning we'll find, it's not a day that's passed, it's been a whole year. So it's like this twilight zone thing that happens. And uh, of course, I've been in there, and it didn't happen. I don't think I didn't check the newspaper, but uh, <laughs> but I but I put it in here that it, you know uh, this will happen to you if you're not a good. This only happens to you if you're not right with God, so that I ha ha can have some people leave and come back 
the good people can come and go, but the, the, they risk, they're risking uh, losing a year out of their lives by going in because they're not very good people. <laughs> so that's how I would embellish that so that I could get the story told right. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, the story I just told right here. Okay. And so it is said that persons will lose their way in the forest if they are not right with God. Lost and afraid, they will be forced to spend the night only to escape the next day. Upon exiting, however, one discovers that not just a single day has passed, but an entire year. Carver, who is the, kind of the scout leading the other character through the woods, Carver swears up and down it has happened to him. And then I, I uh, tried to imbue the the trees themselves with some sort of magical uh, nature and um, and that's it. so I talk, start talking about tree rings if you were to cut a tr these special trees in half what you would find in the rings lose a year in the forest you ask impossible how could you lose an entire year in one day what could give a forest power like that well as one of the old-timers at the drugstore says, when a man is concocting a scheme, he's got his gears a-turning. But he says the same holds true for the oaks, pines, and sycamores of the deadening. Their gears are turning, too. Here's what I think he meant by that. As you may recall from high school science, tree rings are a sort of sketch of a timeline, one that depicts every year's worth of weather, year's worth of weather, Fires, blights, inchworms, and other natural causes leave discolorations, too. Concentric as the ripples in a pond, they are readily viewable to anyone handy with a cross-cut saw. But here in the deadening, perhaps there are markings left by supernatural forces as well. Things like the winds of time, ghosts, and the nightly pelting of stardust. With each passing year, tree rings are riddled with mystic information, like a horoscopic wheel chart or even an Indian mandala. And once its instructions are received from on high and its pith infused with magic, the deadening sets its gears to turning, deciphering the details as the years go by and rotating its tree rings like, well, decoder rings. There's no real way of knowing, but perhaps these wooden circles are more like the inner workings of a bank safe. Free spinning tumblers that move within one another in opposing directions around a common center. Their notches catch like sprockets until the correct combination is achieved, until the desired results are unlocked. Which, whichever way these discs spin inside their bellies, the same old magnetism occurs. And when the time is right, the victims of the deadening are summoned and their destinies are meted out in no uncertain terms. So that's my way of trying to put science to how it works. You want to fight? <laughs> is that what this is? 
pressing question is your musical influences, like, like I'm, I'm assuming you grew up in the Paducah area. Yeah. Okay. So, so your musical influence, is that your youth? Mm. Yeah. I, um, my dad was a folky, beatnik kind of guy. I was into uh, blues, and uh, he had a great record collection that I inherited. Of course, we didn't have the internet back then. You know, we didn't know what that was yet. Uh, that was my internet. Basically, he had like uh, Lightning Hopkins and Muddy Waters, and he had Dukes of Dixieland and folk Bob Dylan and things like that. And uh, so I'd go through those records and listen. And uh, that that was, uh, I guess, I just I didn't really care for what was on MTV or something. I didn't relate to rap or just a lot of the stuff uh, that I just I I just didn't. It didn't move me because I'd already heard this other stuff, you know, and it just defrauded anything being made today. I just felt very alone in my musical uh, uh, interests, and um, and then we moved around a lot, so I wasn't able to become sort of um, uh, uh, like we moved to Louisiana, and so I had to switch schools a lot. And uh, so I, w I wasn't able to kind of like get bogged down into one thing. Uh, so I think I was always kind of off center. And I think it also made me miss home. I always missed Kentucky when I was down there, the entire 1980s. So like uh, I was just uprooted a lot. And uh, I think I've always had a, I've been missing a sense of place. I just thought about this like, you know, very recently, it's like, well, I'm always writing about Kentucky, Kentucky, you know, Kentucky Colonel and all this stuff, because I think I was yanked out of here and uh, kept away so long that I, I just missed a home base of some sort, you know. So that's that's why I uh, started uh, just kind of creating these uh, stories in my head and, um, and listening to old music, and they just kind of came together, I think. And uh, my parents were very supportive in me doing that kind of thing. And, uh, of course, those records came in handy. And, and now the Internet, you know, I'm, everybody can finally know, can, can choose what they want to listen to, you know. But it was kind of pop culture was kind of forced down your throat, you know. And I just kind of always had a rebellious attitude towards that. You know, I didn't want to fit in uh, because who knew if I did fit in, I might get jerked out of that one day, and so it's always just kind of, you know, jockeying for position, I guess, trying to stay sane or insane. I don't know. <laughs> mm -hmm. Well, it's um, a good question. I've always written a little something since I was a very small child. I inherited a. 1920s L.C. Underwood typewriter that my maternal grandfather used to write with. And uh, while the other kids were outside playing, I'd be busy just writing. Even then, it wasn't really fiction. It was just restating historical material. But uh, my first book came out in 2001. It was a, or 2000, 2001, I think. It was a biography of Cassius Clay. And then from there, everything kind of snowballed. One book led to another. That's about as interesting as I can make it. Well, I was drawing since I was a little bitty. At two years old, I was drawing Batman and Robin. With, like with the 
horn head and uh, Robin with the mask, but kind of stick figure bodies and just kind of Bugs Bunny and stuff like that. Uh, and then uh, and then I just became, like I said, it was kind of like a Zen thing, the way I played in my mind instead of playing with kids. You know, don't get too close to any of the neighborhood kids because you might, you know, get jerked up and have to move somewhere. So we moved around so much is the point. And so the drawing and uh, using my imagination had to be where I played and uh, because it was just no consistency in the life, really, uh, as far as uh, interactions with kids my own age. So, I, yeah, that's it just ended up, you know, making up funny things and, you know. Still use a typewriter, or is it all? No, I I just use a computer. I, yeah. Oddly enough, really have no preference at all for it. I probably still use a typewriter, except it's so hard to find ribbons. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I still have it. I just don't use it. Yeah, I mean, it's beautiful. It must weigh fifty pounds. <laughs> it's all metal, every bit of it. Is it? It was. It was. Mechanical. It wasn't like an electric one, was it? Oh no, no, yeah. no. This is. You actually, it's. You have to push pretty hard to make the keys go up. I'd always miss and go in between them, and like in the gears. Yeah, if you hit two at once, both keys go up at the same yeah, time, yeah. and they yeah. like cross yeah. each other. It has a certain charm to it, but it's too much trouble to use when you can just cut and paste and italicize. How did they uh, in the old olden days, which wasn't that long ago, but, but like you you type all this out and you get the stack of a, of a book, say like, like say Stephen King, like like here's my book. So somebody's got to go. How do they turn that into a book? It's not a file. It's not. It's just, it's got to be typeset by hand. Yeah. Yeah. I guess so. I guess I need to go on YouTube and <laughs> ask that. Well, about the only help I have is, again, my twin brother. Anytime I write something, I always have him read it because he's a really good proofreader, and he'll always spot something that I never did. I even teach English, and I can't catch everything in my own work. There was always something I didn't notice. But yeah, other than that, it's I've nearly couple, all me. Yeah, so. People that will, will proofread it, and then uh, before I even like try to find a publisher, um, I want it to be as close as possible. So I've got friends that will uh, go through it and make even um, creative content suggestions of pacing and word selection and stuff like that. There's a, those people that I trust that can say, that I, that are writers themselves that uh, that they can look at it and go, well, you should have said you should flip those two sentences 
So I'll do that just on my own. And then by the time I get it to the publisher, they'll go through it again with yeah. a fine tooth comb. And because sometimes I've read in different people that I admire, and I can hear that in your book, they have colorful little phrases of way of describing things mm. that are unique to them. And, and I often wonder, because I feel like I get to know that person just by reading that material. So I think, is what I'm reading an actual, very accurate reflection of the person who actually wrote that, you know? Yeah, I think so. I think so. Yeah. yeah, I think if you read enough by one person, eventually this voice starts coming out, and it always sounds like that person. So that's gotta I be, think that's got to be them, you know. If you're, yeah. if you're sensing that, that's 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 the actual author. Yeah, it's not a, you know, it's not an assembly line really. It, it's somebody's got to come up with all that, and then then you fix it. Yeah, one of one of the things I I was, you know, everybody loves Tolkien, Lord of the Rings, and all that stuff. Well, that is kind of Anglo-Saxon Norse mythology that he made cool. He made monsters instead of the Goths and Visigoths, or like you know, he turned them into orcs and there's cool imagery and uh, magic and stuff like that. He he took. Uh, history and, and, and mythology and out of the ac stale academic world of the stuffy libraries and uh, <laughs> and and people get into the, that culture and you can dig into what you know the more you get into it the richer it is and, and I always thought well why didn't why don't we uh, why is it that we're scared that this stuff is going to go away because well it is because it's not sexy to, to people and uh but it can be i mean if you just embellish it a little you can take your own tales that are in danger of being forgotten down the memory hole forever uh or obscure on the internet uh and you can enliven it there's no reason that to me uh that you should have to um resort to just comic books or something like that that's just dreamed up at out of pure fantasy with no real relation to culture. I think if you can awaken the bl blood memory and the culture within a person and entertain them, th th these stories would never risk being forgotten because they're being enlivened and that will drive them further into the future on, 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 uh, under their own volition. And you won't, you won't have to have it be self-conscious, academic-like, got to keep this thing alive, you know, let's, you know, to where it's this precious thing, you know, uh, like it's under, a, I don't know, like it's a lot of times in the old time music, it's almost like a, like a period piece recital, like Williamsburg or something, you know, it, it, instead of it just being fun and um, kick, kick it in the butt a little bit and, you know, and break some rules a little and I don't, uh, it's, too, it's too much of a, this kind of a precious Civil War reenactors, where they call them stitch counters, where like if you don't have a certain amount of stitches in your in your uniform, then you're not cool. It's like you guys should be happy. Anyone's into this hobby, <laughs> not kicking anybody out, you know. 
the same in, in any kind of like the rockabilly world or the, the bluegrass world. People get so uh, anal about it that uh, they're taking the fun out of it. It should be fun. These stories ought to be fun. Your your, your granny's folk tales that all that should be fair game to explore because in the old days they were making it up as they went. There's a lot of inconsistencies and. Those floating lyrics and the old uh, jack tales and things that were being told in Appalachia, like from one story to the next, they were very vastly different and embellished from the original source in England and Scotland. They're barely recognizable by the time these these old hillbillies get done with telling the story. They're a lot more fun to read, but you know that that doesn't need to end. You know, make it make it your own. That's all. Yeah. Thank you for coming to my TED talk. <laughs> <laughs> well, while you were speaking, I was thinking, I think the reason I like old newspapers so much is it's lost information, but you can find it again. If you're just willing to look for it, you can recapture all that, and it's not really lost. Yeah, it always exists. It's still there. Mm -hmm. It's uh, like you were saying, if an elderly person has stories and they're not written down or recorded the stories are gone but at least with an old newspaper it's still there this right, yeah. takes work to find it so those are my thoughts on the subject <laughs> yeah i love libraries they make my life so much easier Is it haunted? Well, they have a history room. It's a sort of photos and memorabilia. Uh, EKU, where I teach, does have kind of a history room. It's called the Townsend Room, and it's just uh, old censuses and uh, old uh, county histories, et cetera, for Kentucky. So I'm, I, actually, I'm there a lot. Sometimes I use census records to confirm that a certain person existed who's mentioned in a especially weird story. It sounds like it might be a hoax. I want to confirm that people were really existed. Oh, it's great. Yeah, they need to. Re I hope they reopen it. Well, they, at the moment, I don't think they really know what to do with it because the state used to own it and they had tours every day and now Eastern owns it. And they're still trying to figure, well, what are we gonna do with this? Are we gonna have, have students give tours? Are we gonna get professional guides to give tours? And it suffered some storm damage about a month ago. Yeah, and they're still working on that. So it's a great house, it's a real treasure. I hope they reopen it. Does anyone have a ghost story? I'm just, can we? Yeah? Yeah, just. I'm not going to fill Donahue, though. <laughs> All right. Can I sit on your lap? No. Okay, so I feel like I'm holding the feather at the bonfire. Um, okay, so here's a ghost story. Um, one night, I was spending the night at my girlfriend's house, okay? 
and she was not aware of this, but I have, I experienced sleep paralysis sometimes. You ever, does that ever happen to you? Like old lady sitting on your chest looking at you? No. Okay. <coughs> so, yeah. So, as I was sleeping, um, whenever I sleep and my feet aren't covered, I have terrible nightmares. So, I opened my eyes, and um, her room was probably like 12 feet by 12 feet, really tiny. And her bed took up most of it. So, right in front of the bed is the door. The door is closed. I saw somebody standing in front of the closed door. And uh, normally, within like after like 10 seconds of waking up, like all the illusions disappear, you know, whenever you have a terrible nightmare. So, as, uh, as I started to wake up a little bit more, and my eyes adjust to the darkness, it didn't disappear. This woman standing right in front of the door, you know. And I, I shook her, said, hey, please wake up. And she was like, what do you want, you know. She was not happy about being woken up. So whenever she, uh, she opened her eyes and I said, hey, look over there. Do you see that? And she said, yes, I do. Cover your head. Go to sleep. <laughs> so the next morning, we're having breakfast. And um, I just figured that, man, I had like probably like made all that up in my sleep. So I, I was like, hey, um, do you remember me saying anything weird last night? And she told me exactly what had happened without me suggesting anything. So, I don't know, man. She took it a lot easier than you did, I guess. She said, she said, that happens sometimes. <laughs> yep. That's pretty good, right? I have seen something in sleep paralysis state, but it was a cowled figure. And, uh, huh? Yeah, well, more like a monk, like a, or the Grim Reaper kind of thing. Uh, you can't see its face. And uh, I've had uh, three other visitors, it, with me not ever telling them about it, uh, see it at my house, too. One, once on the front porch looking in the window, once by the propane tank out back, uh, the peripheral shadow people. So, like, it's like, a, I don't know. That's what makes me uh, kind of believe in Jung, Carl Jung, uh, kind of stuff. Uh, uh, that these things are kind of uh, blood memory things. Who knows? But, yeah, that, that explains the consistency. <laughs> but uh, that's kind of like what the next book is about, is stuff like that. Yeah. Mm. 
Yeah. That's a total logical reason for why the walls bleed. Yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. There's nothing weirder, though, of a modern house, like, built in the 90s, even, like, that's haunted. It's like, it's, there's nothing creepy about it when you walk in, but, you know, aesthetically, you know, it's like nice carpet and vinyl siding, and, but it's haunted. Oh, from Kentucky Book of the Dead? Usually when I do ghost stories, true ghost stories, I try to make them kind of funny. Uh, they're sort of tongue-in-cheek, but some of them are a little scary, and that was one of the scary ones. There's a place in Richmond. It's called the Stockton House, and I promised the owners I wouldn't give the exact location of it, but... Uh, it, I, I, I hardly know where to begin with this one. It was so strange. I spoke with the couple that lived there for years and years. She never saw the ghost. He did. Apparently, it would only show itself to men. Everyone who saw it except one person was a man. And uh, he, they moved in in the early 80s, 1983, I think. And almost immediately, the furniture started rearranging itself. Uh, just little disturbing things like that, which she did witness that. And one night he woke up at about 2 a.m. and there was a woman standing by the bed uh, wearing widow's weeds and really, really scary-looking woman with saggy cheeks and big dark rings around her eyes. And she spoke in this very deep, unintelligible voice. He could barely make out what she was saying. Something about going to a funeral. And he closed his eyes and he opened them up. She was gone. And he told his wife what he saw. This is the interesting part. A few weeks later, he was cleaning out the attic and was going through this crawl space and suddenly he's face to face with this face. And he realized he was looking at a painting. And he pulled it out, and he had it cleaned. And uh, there's a picture of it in my book. I do have a photograph of the painting. Uh, she's pretty unmistakable looking. And the thought, part that I thought was so interesting, if he had found the painting first, and then he saw the ghost, you'd say, OK, he saw this scary-looking face, and it haunted himself, his subconscious, and he just saw it you know, in a vision by the bed. But he saw the ghost, and then he found the painting. And his wife actually confirmed that he, he had told her all about it several days before he found the painting. And when the story got in the papers, they heard from some guy who'd lived there back in the 70s with his aunt and uncle, and he'd seen it. And his description of it matched his exactly, even though the newspaper account didn't really say what she looked like. So that's what I find really interesting is ghost stories. Somebody sees a ghost, okay, they're seeing things, or any number of explanations for it, but when more than one person reports it and their details match up, then you gotta start wondering. So those to me are my favorite ghost stories. The rest, and the rest of that story is pretty interesting too, like the, the, the payoff. Do you have copies of that for some of them? I'm afraid I only brought one copy. I just don't have too many copies of the left. I brought some of my newer ones that I do have extra copies of. Yeah. I only brought one. It's the one I gave my wife when we were dating, so if I sold it, I think she'd kill me. <laughs> I can't sell that one. Of course, if you offer enough, she might not mind. She'd just say, give me the money, go buy another one. 
a ghost I saw once with my uh, ex-wife. We, when we were married, uh, we were driving in, uh, at night in Kentucky, in Paducah, and uh, a storm had rolled in really low, like, but it's not raining, but there was that you know, one of those weird, intense electric storms where it's like spider vein lightning going up and crawling along the, the mass of the, of the hull of this front line coming in, this dark, almost like a ship, giant UFO is coming in with lightning. And I was like, wow, this is a cool storm. It's intense. It's not raining, but it's like you could smell the ozone. You know, it's really neat. But everywhere you go, uh, there's too much... We wanted to go drive somewhere where there wasn't a lot of light, or street lights or light pollution. So, like, we went down Bridge Street, down by the railroad tracks there. It's behind the Lowe's now. I don't think the Lowe's was there. But uh, there's no street lights, so it was really dark. And, it's like, and so we were driving. It's like, oh, cool. Like, we're trying to find some place to pull over. So we just kind of watched this, like, almost like fireworks, really intense, dark storm again it's not raining it's just all this crazy lightning and it's not coming down it's just scurrying up and so uh so we're driving it's like oh you see that one yeah that was cool and she's like watch out for this guy up here don't hit him you know i know we're looking at this thing i see him i see him and uh and then i put my bright lights on just make sure i didn't hit him and he wasn't there he never was wasn't there he never was there but we both saw him, and I looked in the mirror, and it's like, we're, it's like, it took about, like, 15 seconds of still driving, going, did you, yeah, no, 15 seconds of driving a little more in silence, like, where did he go? She's like, right? And uh, it was just like one of those things, like, look at the rearview mirror. But uh, we, I said, what did he look like? He's, she said he had white tennis shoes on. I was like, white tennis shoes? That's what I saw which kind of takes the old-timey flavor out of the story because he's had Air Jordans or something. <laughs> but we, we thought that, you know, that's what they say is like electricity is what, is what these ghosts draw from. Like, that would have been, a, and right by the railroad tracks where someone could have gotten hit by a train. Like, like, I could see that guy being in a loop, you know. But that was corroborated by another person, you know. Yeah, and if they don't have a chance to talk about it or share details and they come up with the same thing that's that's kind of interesting <laughs> everybody does they're too they're too scared everybody's got a ghost story this is like what we uh do you have one Now, I'm not going to kneel or I won't be able to stand back up. Um, well, it, no, that's all right. Well, it's uh, mostly related to my grandmother. And, uh, well, just a little background information. There's some odd generation gaps in my family where people just wouldn't stop having kids. So, um, my grandmother was born in 1901. Anyway, um, there's all these family stories about supposedly if you traced our lineage back far enough you could get up into the new england states and one of our ancestors was um murdered in the salem witch trials 
I don't know. But uh, growing up, the story that was always told was my grandmother sitting around the uh, kitchen table and my mom and some of the older ones and my grandmother was talking about her mom and her grandmother and the silverware all stood straight up and then flew out in oh. different directions and at least three of my aunts you know have told this story so you know either they're all trying to pull one over on me or I don't know my, my granddad did make moonshine so maybe that has something to do with it <laughs> but I do know that um, in my family the way many of them tell it my grandmother her ghost appears when something bad happens, like she's trying to repair them for it. Um, so, oh yeah, yeah. My, my oldest aunt, um, she saw vision of her mother, actually spoke, you know, and said, you need to get ready, because it was an evening, you need to get ready, you need to get dressed. And um, shortly thereafter, someone came knocking on the door and her son had been in a car wreck, but he was okay. And she knew he was okay, because my grandmother told her. And um, she's appeared to quite a few people in the family, especially when there's, you know, accidents involving people too young to, you know. And most of the time she's like, eh, be okay. But um, when my mom was carrying me, she saw a vision of my grandmother. And she'd been having nightmares for months about one of her nephews. And then my grandmother appeared to her sister, the man's mother and um didn't reassure her he would be okay and you know he'd gotten drunk and gotten in the car and he'd wrapped his car around the tree and no he did not make it um and really with my grandmother it started when she died because uh, uh she was killed by a drunk driver they were on their way to go swim and they were hit by a drunk driver and my mom was in that wreck but one of the sisters was living like a state away and saw a vision of her mother who, you know, to her knowledge was still alive. Well, no, she, you know, she had just died. So, well, that's my stories. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, and, and the visions in the family, that, that seems to be told a lot. Like When my sister, um, my sister Holly was about 16 or 17, she was sitting in her room in the dark listening to music, you know, the big, big headphones from the 80s. And she saw uh, one of our cousin's faces just in her mind's eye, and then it turned into a skull. And, um, well, that was the night that he decided to huff liquid gold, and, yeah, he died. So those are my ghost stories. Yeah. My uh, dad used to dabble in uh, astral projection. <laughs> yeah. He, well, I'm trying to be nice, but uh, when he went down to uh, Louisiana or Arkansas, whatever, before we all moved, like I was saying, like we all moved around. But he'd have to go get the job first, and we'd be home without him for for months. And uh, but he was he was trying to visit uh, us spiritually, evidently. This was in the '70s or '80s, and um, and my mom, who's a Christian, you know, truth speaker, speaker of truths, is isn't the type to uh, you know 
to like to talk talk about things like this i she did tell me uh, that um she'd been thinking about my dad in, in bed just you know missing him and uh and was up reading or something and she looks up and the, and the wall his face emerges through the wall and then goes back and disappears and then the phone rang she picks it up my dad is on the other line he goes did you get it <laughs> and she says that this really happened you know but he'd been uh, he'd been uh, studying that kind of stuff and uh, then at some point he got scared by it on threw all the books away but uh anyway but that i put the, I, uh, the version of that and embellished it a little more in the in this book it's like anything like that that i hear it's like oh that's a good one you know all right so i was actually a student at murray state when all that happened i, I don't know if y'all remember like in the mid nine y'all know this story but uh it was a teenage vampire cult that had gotten out of control from a game of uh forget what it's called it was like a role-playing game Ma masquerade yep and so uh, roderick farrell was the ringleader appropriate last name And uh, so what happened was they just kind of got carried away with the game and it became a cult and uh, they went to Florida and murdered some people, uh, parents of his girlfriend, and uh, and he's do, he's ended up being uh, the youngest uh, inmate to ser be serving a life sentence in Florida State Penitentiary. So anyway, I wrote a song called Blood on the Bluegrass about it. So I was down there playing in Florida, and uh, there was a woman at the merch table, and uh, she says, are, uh, are you J.D. Wilkes? Uh, yes. And uh, she goes, I, well, I am uh, the attorney for Roderick Farrell, and uh, he has a message for you regarding your song, Blood on the Bluegrass. And I go, okay. I'm talking to a lawyer. I like, well, Roderick just wants you to know that it's his favorite song. <laughs> and uh he just went he you know wished he could be here tonight <laughs> and, for, and for a split second i was like flattered you know like here's this murderer though and i'm like well, screw that guy but <laughs> but anyway the uh, vampire cult was uh, probably about 50 kids uh that kept growing even after he had gone to prison they had uh, were all uh, basically pre-internet goth kids that didn't know you could you could just dress up and you don't have to really kill people you know <laughs> like now we know that because the internet like oh this is normalized uh, these th kinds of things but um but they uh we uh, played a gig once uh i don't know how this got booked but we were uh, playing their hangout which is this coffee shop um uh, but it was not the a vampire hangout coffee shop as of like two weeks ago I think it, the gig got booked there, and it had been turned into sort of this vampire hangout for kids. <laughs> and uh, and so as everybody's in there was wearing like trench coats and top hats and little blue circle glasses and uh, and cut marks on their arms and all that, and real pale and creepy looking kids and speaking in fake English accents. They were really into Anne Rice and stuff. And uh, 
and I just like we were in our rockabilly clothes and our string ties and like at the wrong gig who booked this gig you know and we're up there rocking in a, in a kind of a picture window uh, like they have in Nashville where the band plays in the window out to the bar now, that's exactly what it was and our body heat was steaming up the window so I went and like a jerk I drew uh, the count from Sesame Street <laughs> the vampire and started making fun of them and uh, they, everybody, nobody thought it was funny actually and, uh, <laughs> and I know this because when we loaded out they had slashed my tires yeah so yeah they were mean blood on the bluegrass I'll just You hear it? Well, we're down south in a cane tuck town where all of the stubble fields grow. One boy did rise with the devil in his eyes, whose heart was dark as Westfield cold. His heart was dark as Westfield cold. Roderick Farrell and that Windorf girl knelt down upon the darkened grave. Well, he drew his dagger down and the red ran to the ground. And they looked upon the bloody blade. And then they licked upon the bloody blade. Right that blood on the blue, blue grass. He cried some hallowed hunting ground. It was a midnight curse of that bloody black patch. It took another poor boy down. It took another poor boy down. Now they're riding in the night down to FLA. The bitter folks of foul farewell. With his claw hammer high, he drew their spirits nigh. He danced amidst the crimson spray. They danced amidst the crimson spray. Well, that blood on the blue, blue grass They cried some hallowed hunting ground It was a midnight curse of that bloody black past Took another poor boy down Took another poor boy down All right, so I always put like a uh, cautionary note at the end, like the old murder ballads had, so, so it doesn't end so darkly. Take heed, all ye motherless children so lost. Dwell not in the caves of your mind. Roderick Farrell's trail of sin, it led him to his end, but bloody fields blossom blue in time. Bloody fields blossom blue in time. Blood, blood, blood on the blue, blue grass. Cross some hallowed hunting ground. It was a midnight curse of that bloody black patch. Took another poor boy down. Took another poor boy down. Yes, it took another poor boy. There it is. Thank you. I'll just do this one and uh, call it good after this, you think? All right. For music, at least. Yeah. <laughs> 
There you go.